NDV, Narcissistic Domestic Violence Healing, is a podcast by the nonprofit organization, NDV Healing and Support Incorporated, that covers all things that correlate with domestic violence, such as mental health, narcissist abuse, true crime headlines, interviews for mental health professionals, and of course, domestic violence survivor stories. In this episode, episode three, Dr. Sherry All, a licensed clinical neurorehabilitation psychologist, brain health expert, and the owner and director of the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness, discusses brain injuries, which domestic violence survivors often have, and she discusses some of the effects injuries have on our brains. Welcome to the podcast for NDV Healing and Support Incorporated. I am Teresa Simon, the podcast host and founder of NDV Healing and Support Incorporated. This is our third episode, and today we have with us Dr. Sherry All, who is a licensed clinical psychologist. Thank you, Sherry, for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Teresa. First, I'll just get started with if you could just tell us a little bit about the Chicago Center for the Cognitive Wellness. Yeah. So we're a group practice in the Chicago area. We have two, two locations in Chicago and we're a group of mental health providers. We treat people with depression and anxiety and a lot of physical symptoms of those types of issues. And we have a particular focus on helping adults and adolescents with cognitive changes. So we're really comfortable working with people who have traumatic brain injury, early stage dementia, ADHD, um, those types of issues. Anybody who would see a neurologist is a really good fit for our practice. Great. And then um, you did bring up some traumatic brain injuries, which is good because I did want to talk about that because I did see that there can be neurocognitive impairment in women who have experienced domestic violence, as well as brain injuries and such as like repetitive concussions. Have you seen a lot of this We have seen some folks with traumatic brain injuries as a result of an assault. I can't recall specifically what the source of that was. I do remember a couple of cases of of like specific domestic violence. But yeah, for sure, when there's physical violence involved, then, you know, there's a whole range of injuries that people can experience. And we we see a lot of, uh, if it's not specifically domestic violence related, like we see a lot of cases that are similar to that. And the things that kind of can result that would like, you know, end up sending someone to our office would be obviously any kind of lasting brain damage or concussion. We help a lot with that. You know, there's a pretty big difference between kind of a mild concussion and and a moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. Most people recover from concussions, but a lot of times people maybe aren't recovering in the same way from a concussion as we would expect from like a neurological standpoint. And a lot of times that has to do with the trauma of the experience, like whatever led to the concussion. So the psychological trauma or even the psychological trauma of having a period of time where your brain doesn't work the way that it normally does. And that's a huge concern for people because, you know, our brains are probably our most valuable resource. You know, you think about the cost involved in not being able to use your brain 
the way that you normally do, I mean, it's tremendous if you have to stop working or if somebody has to like keep an eye on you because you can't be independent. So we, we do deal a lot with those types of issues, whether it be physical brain trauma, even, even chronic pain, which can come from, from uh, any kind of injury or assault, and then, uh, and then the psychological trauma related to that. Okay, definitely. Because um, those are things that, of course, domestic violence victims would deal with, especially like with repetitive concussions. Do you see a lot of repetitive concussions or can you talk about that too? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, we see a decent amount, not a, not a lot. We have worked with a few like NFL players. So, I mean, certainly a, a concern. It, it's not a good thing to have your brain knocked around on, on a regular basis. And, you know, that, that certainly is a concern. So there's a lot of confusion right now. You know, there's still a lot we need to learn about particularly this, this condition um, called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. That's what we're seeing in the brains of these NFL players who are donating their brains to the, the brain bank for that is at Boston University. And Dr. McKee is a pathologist there who is collecting the brain tissue of former NFL players and looking inside it and, and finding these, they're really what we call tau tangles, and they're one of the types of pathology that we see in Alzheimer's disease. So we don't really know right now when it comes to chronic, that's how we diagnose chronic, uh, CTE, is, is finding these tau tangles in the brain tissue. So the current state of the science on CTE is really at this, like, what we would call a case study level. So that we have several case studies of former NFL players. And also back in history, we, it's not the first time that we've seen this. We've been looking at brains of people who've been hit a lot. Um, so boxers uh, have had this type of, of uh, brain pathology. And so people who've had a lot of concussions, and then when they die, we see this, this, these tau tangles. And then we kind of will look back at their life, right? Like there haven't been any prospective studies or even longitudinal studies to be able to kind of show any kind of a syndrome related to CTE. So there's still a whole bunch we don't know about it. We don't know how many concussions it takes to get this kind of pathology. We're not even 100% sure if this pathology is different than what happens, if it's maybe an acceleration of, of, of Alzheimer's disease. There's this concept of cognitive reserve that one of the biggest predictors of cognitive decline is really like how much brain cells you have sort of left over in your brain bank, and you can kind of build that up over your life, or getting hit in the head over and over can kind of whittle that away. And then, you know, maybe you were going to get Alzheimer's anyway, but you're just getting it earlier because you've lost your, your brain reserve over time. And so I do not recommend repeated concussions. <laughs> um, on the other hand, what I do tell people a lot of times is that if you have one concussion or maybe even two, like try not to freak out because a lot of what we, what we treat is sort of the kind of overreaction to some of this, that people get really anxious 
about having had a concussion and they believe that they're on this like downward trajectory of, you know, automatic cognitive decline. And, and that's not usually the case. Most people recover from concussions and usually the, the trajectory of recovery from a concussion is up. Your first day is usually your worst day and we expect you to get better over time. But, you know, certainly if you keep re-injuring your brain, then, um, then that is certainly something that, that could have lasting damage. So um, one thing we do know about concussions is that if you've had one concussion, you are more likely to have more concussions. It does increase your risk of having a second concussion. And so, so in terms of, of people um, affected by domestic violence, I mean, I think that's probably all the more reason to ensure your safety that if you've suffered a concussion as a result of, of your domestic partner or, or whomever, I, I really recommend that you work very hard to protect yourself from, you know, that ever happening again. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then you also have a book that you're working on, The Neuroscience of Memory. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Do you talk about like the brain injuries in there and things like that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yes, I'm so excited. I, um, so I have The Neuroscience of Memory it's due to come out in early 2021. So we've still got a little work to do on it, but, uh, but I've written, you know, the whole manuscript so far. And um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it's all about are ways to hold on to and improve your memory. The audience for this book is pretty broad, but I, I really tried to steer it towards the types of people who do come into our office and we see a decent number of people who've experienced brain injuries and concussions. And so that's definitely a subgroup of, um, of, of the audience. But broadly, the, the book is really geared towards this idea that when you know how your brain works, you have, you're better at operating it. And so my goal is to really teach you the neuroscience of how memory works. And not just memory, because memory doesn't live alone in isolation. To have a good memory, you need to have really good attention skills. And you also need to have um, these executive skills that we call them, like organizing and planning. And so, so really beefing up your cognitive skills as a whole in service of improving your memory. But then also, I, I talk a lot about not just your memory now, but also in the long term. And so I talk a lot about this concept of cognitive reserve, which I call your brain's 401k, because it's quite literally <laughs> like your, your brain's retirement account. And then I use sort of an investment strategy throughout the, the book. So there are seven skills that are part of this book. And those skills are not actually memory tricks. They're actually lifestyle skills geared towards helping you invest in your cognitive reserve to, you know, help your brain perform better now, but then also, you know, stave off any kind of long-term declines because dementia prevention is a thing. We can actually do that. You know, we can prevent dementia and, and similar to how we can prevent like heart disease and diabetes and investing in your, your brain 401k is really kind of the best way to do that. And so I give you all the skills for that. It's a workbook format. So, um, so it's, easy to use, you know, as a person yourself that you can kind of go through and do all the exercises. But a secondary audience are also mental health and rehabilitation professionals who can get the book and use it with their with their patients. That's awesome. And then I can also 
um, because like you said, you, you geared it towards people that come into your office and the subcategory is people who have brain injuries, but then also, as we know, domestic violence victims have many injuries, including brain injuries. So that's something that they would also be interested in too, is probably checking out that book as well. And like you said, mental health professionals that are also interested in treating. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. And then I see also too that you had a blog on memories and mindfulness. And basically it helps with like anxiety and overall health. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Because I feel like that would be helpful also. Yeah, mindfulness is great. Mindfulness, we're actually, you know, we're seeing so much data now how mindfulness can actually change your brain. Practicing mindfulness meditators have... um there's a part of your brain called the amygdala that is sort of like your fear detector. And, and people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, that amygdala is bigger. So it may actually grow through experience. But in meditators, the amygdala is actually smaller. And so we don't have the study yet that shows that meditating will shrink your amygdala, but I think that's probably what's happening. And, and I'm guessing that that study is going to come out pretty soon. So mindfulness is great on, on a number of levels. One, because of this idea that, you know, anxiety interferes with your ability to focus and remember things. And, you know, when your amygdala is going, ah, that's scary, you know, it it literally sucks the blood flow away from the thinking parts of your brain. You've probably experienced this where you ever walk away from an argument and then you come up with like the best comeback ever, right? And you're like, why did I think of that? You know, in the argument. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because like your thinking brain was completely hijacked by your emotional brain. You know, you don't need these high level thinking skills when you're trying to defend yourself, you know, physically or, or even emotionally. So when you're, when you're kind of away from that and the, the, your emotional brain is starting to let go you know, and relax a little bit, then your thinking comes back online, right? And so, so there's this whole hijacking of focus, creativity, problem solving that happens when you're acutely anxious. So mindfulness helps with that because you can, you learn the tools to be able to kind of get yourself out of that limbic hijack. Another thing that's helpful about mindfulness, particularly when it comes to memory, is that mindfulness training is like attention training. And it's probably one of the most efficient types of attention training that exists. So let's take uh, John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, that it's, you know, paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And so if you're doing a mindfulness practice where, you know, maybe you're just focusing on something like your breath, right? And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm focusing on my breath in and out, in and out. Well, your mind is going to wander, right? You're going to start thinking about your to-do list or you're going to start, you know, rehashing an argument. And mindfulness practice, you know, the whole goal there is that you notice non-judgmentally that you are not paying attention to the present moment, that you're off in the future or you're off in the past. And then you gently, the non-judgmental part, right? You don't go, oh, so bad at meditating, right? You you kindly (laughs) bring your attention back to the present moment. And so, and so you're just like bringing it back, bringing it back, bringing it back. And, and that's attention training. So mindfulness is great for helping you calm down, you know, get out of that limbic hijack. It's really great attention training. And it's also really good for memory because we cannot remember you. 
me, you, nobody. Nobody can remember what you don't pay attention to. And so if you're not in this moment, like if you're off in the future, you're not going to notice what's going on. And then you're not going to remember what that's about. Or if you're ruminating on an old argument or an old situation and your mind is in the past, you're not in this moment. So you're not catching all the data. I like to think of it as like kind of like a high definition TV. My, my husband several years ago bought his first like high definition television and he brings uh-huh. it, he's so excited, right? He brings it home. It's, I think it's probably a flat screen where he puts it on the wall and he plugs it into the, the satellite feed. And, and the screen looks terrible. Like it's awful. And we're like, what? <laughs> I don't understand. Like, what is this about? Well, he, he then goes and learns that he has to have a high definition. Um, he has to like pay DirecTV extra to get the high definition signal <laughs> to like, you know, feed his high definition TV. So if you want to have high definition memories, which is kind of like your, you know, like the beautiful high definition screen on your new TV, then you have to have a high definition signal. And mindfulness helps with that because it helps you have, you know, more high definition attention, and then you can form high definition memories. That's, that makes total sense. Because when you were talking about the hijacking, that can happen also like with fear, like if you're feeling fearful, and then it just the it hijacks your brain. Because I've I had an incident as a domestic violence survivor where the abuser, I was very afraid at the moment. And so I picked up the phone, but I couldn't think about what to dial because I was such in a state of fear that I just started pressing buttons. And I I ended up randomly calling um, my mom at the time. And then she ended up like coming. But I was such in a state of fear that I couldn't even remember when I picked up the phone what to dial. I was just, my mind went kind of like blink almost. Yeah. Definitely see where like that hijacking comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, in most situations, we don't really need to think, you know, because we're, you know, we're, we're, we're primates, right? We're like, we're, we're animals under all this, this like complex thinking brain. And, and that part of the brain is important for like fight, flight, or freeze. And, you know, whatever's going to like drive to kind of help you survive that attack or potential attack. And we, you know, if you're thinking like about it, like a zebra that has like a predator, like a lion that it sees and, and it, you know, all it needs to do is run away from the lion as fast as possible. It doesn't need to be, you know, solving math problems or recalling phone numbers, um, like while it's running away from the lion. So our thinking brain just doesn't happen or it doesn't work the, the way that it's, that we're used to when we're hijacked by something like that, like intense fear. So I think it's really important for folks to have some compassion for themselves if you've ever acted very weird, or maybe, you know, like you were saying, you know, maybe not in your, not in the, like, you didn't do the thing that you wish you could have done or was in your best interest, right? Like, it was great that you were able to call your mom, right? Um, who, who were you wishing you had called? I think I was trying to call like some type of police or, you know, something to get myself in a safe situation. But I was so and like you said, you know, give yourself compassion. I was so flustered that my mind went completely blank. And I didn't even know what to dial because I was so, he, I was so in, um, in fear, especially with like him standing like right there in front of me. So I just grabbed the phone and I'm like, I don't even know what to dial. But thankfully at the time, my mom was on speed dial. So I, I just hit any buttons and that was the button that came up. 
Yeah. Um, he ended up coming and he ended up running out. But, at, you know, at the time, I couldn't even think. Yeah. Yeah. So have some compassion for yourself because like, you know, we're not meant to think in moments like that. Like we're meant to react and to save our, to save our lives. Definitely. And then you also have like a talk topic that you did on honoring your feelings during COVID-19, which that was a huge thing because a lot of us throughout the country were feeling, you know, all different types of things. It affected all of us differently. There were some people you know, that got really affected by being at home. And then, of course, domestic violence victims were affected in that way as well. So can you talk a little bit about honoring your feelings during COVID-19? Yeah. And, you know, and I don't, I don't know that it's even accurate for us to talk about it in the past necessarily because, you know, there's no, still, <laughs> right? <laughs> still going on. Yeah, I was, I was texting with a family member who had a scare um, even just yesterday. So yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that, that, we, that we honor our feelings. Like feelings, feelings are important. You know, I think, I don't know what, what happened to us Americans. We, we pretend to be very stoic. <laughs> and, um, and maybe it's just because we didn't really understand feelings and we really value thinking and logic and, and things like that, you know. But as we learn more and more about feelings, I, I really feel like there's, you know, they're making a comeback <laughs> that, that, you know, if we can improve our emotional intelligence, then we really have an advantage. People who have social and emotional intelligence do better in, in a lot of different situations. And so I think all the time, it's important to honor our feelings, but particularly in what we're going through and what we've been through. I mean, it's such an intense time. We are feeling creatures. We have, we have innate feelings. And, you know, and the reason that we have feelings are really to keep us alive, particularly fear. Fear keeps us alive. Um, hurt is important because it gives you, you know, like emotional hurt. Oh, that hurt my feelings, right? Like that, that's important too, because it, it shows that you're in pain. And that, that you need to take some action to kind of do something or, you know, at least like maybe try to get yourself out of pain. The both fear and hurt are really motivating. Anger, really common, particularly, you know, if we're angry at how people are handling the virus, if we're angry at shutdowns or how we're handling, you know, how the government's handling things. Anger is kind of like a secondary emotion a lot of times. Usually it's kind of driven by either like fear or hurt. Also tremendous sadness. I mean, because I think we're kind of collectively grieving. I know that when I'm in Chicago, I know that when we first went into our shelter in place, like I was so sad. And, uh, and, and I think everybody kind of felt that way. And because, you know, even I hadn't, you know, I didn't know anybody who had died yet. You know, I didn't have the grief that we normally think about, although there's certainly a ton of that too, right? Like you may be grieving a death, but, but I think we were all grieving things like normalcy and hugs and seeing our friends and going out to dinner and, and, and things like that. So, so definitely sadness, but, but I also, you know, I, I, I put that blog post and in, in my talk together also with the idea that I was also noticing that a lot of people were really preventing themselves from feeling joy also. 
So it's not, you know, like there are a lot of intense, what we might call quote unquote negative feelings. I don't like to call them negative feelings because they're just, they're just feelings. But also like, I think a lot of people had sort of written off or felt like it wasn't okay to have moments of joy. And I wanted to be able to kind of encourage folks that, you know, just because we're going through a hard time doesn't mean that there's not opportunities for joy also. And so, um, so that's important. I think, I think at least in my blog post, I wrote also about like, just how shelter in place orders are kind of like a definitely a um, perfect mix for depression that I think I wrote this. I, I, I wish I could remember this, but it was, so I wrote a cocktail recipe for like, you know, one part social isolation, two parts grief, you know, a dash of, uh, I don't know, substance abuse, and then, you know, shake it up and you've got your, your perfect depression cocktail. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just so much, right? Like, did, have you noticed that too? Yes. And I think too, with the coronavirus, the COVID-19, I mean, obviously people are depressed and there are people that are feeling bad about constantly having to stay at home and not being able to do their typical, normal, everyday schedules. And Um, economic devastation too. I mean, yeah. And then the domestic violence piece, obviously with that is they may have been going to work every day to get away from the abuser, but now they're working from home. So now they're stuck more with the abuser. There may be financial strain due to a lot of people lost their jobs and are on unemployment. So then that creates more of an environment that may be conducive to abuse. So yeah, with the domestic violence piece of the coronavirus shutdown, yeah, there were a lot of people having to deal with basically exasperated their, those situations as well. That's why I reached out to you. Like I did, you know, cause I, and I'd been talking about that in my talks, like make, I put in slides for, you know, all the different hotlines and what we should be on the lookout for too, you know, like it, which I guess I'm, you know, I'm still, I would still love to hear, you know, what, like how, how can private citizens help? And knowing that this is a time kind of ripe for that, you know, like, should we be listening to, you know, kind of what, what people are saying, or I was kind of saying like, you know, look for, you know, like sort of like that New York city subway thing, like see something, say something. (laughs) Um, But I mean, yeah, if you see, obviously if you see someone with bruises, but sometimes it's not even visible. So sometimes, you know, just if you see someone who may look like they're, you know, a little bit depressed, a little bit anxious or um, anxious to get home, you know, just having that talk with them and seeing if they are safe. Because sometimes they, you know, a lot of times victims won't reach out. And then of course, with the coronavirus, a lot of victims felt like, oh, well, can I reach out? Because, you know, everything is shut down. And that's why we were letting people know that hotlines are still open. There's many support lines and many support services still open. So don't feel like because there is the coronavirus and things are shut down that you still can get help. Yeah, for sure. That's great. The last thing I wanted to really ask about, because I felt like this is kind of important too, what are the benefits of getting a neuropsychological evaluation? Like how can that help you? Yeah, for sure. Thanks for asking that. Um, So I think, first of all, let me just say, like, let people know what a neuropsychological evaluation is, because I think a lot of people kind of don't know what that is. I I like to say that it's very similar to IQ testing, which I think a lot of people kind of have a sense of of sort of what that's like. It's, you know, kind of, you know, what, what is your relative brain ability and how do you kind of rank in, in the world? And like, I don't know, IQ testing is sort of like how smart you are. Right. 
neuropsych testing is IQ testing for the broader brain. Like neuropsych testing includes more skills beyond just kind of standard intelligence. So, so it's really an objective measurement of your thinking skills. And that includes memory, attention, your planning and organization abilities, what we would call executive function. Also things like language, visual spatial abilities, like, you know, is your brain able to see things and and take in visual information in the same way as, as it used to, or as other people. So it's really the best way to get a clear picture of if your brain is functioning the way that we would expect it to based off of your age, your level of education, a little bit of like your socioeconomic background. And then also, you know, if something's changed as a result of getting bumped in the head or getting, you know, hit and having a concussion, or if you're experiencing some of some dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, we can also do neuropsych testing with kids. And that's where we kind of figure out, you know, if they have like attention deficit disorder or if they have a learning disability. So that's what the, that's what it's, that, what it is. The assessment takes several hours where you would meet one-on-one with a neuropsychologist and kind of go through a lot of that paper and pencil testing and ask you a lot of questions. I might have you draw figures, um, do little worksheets. And then those scores are taken and compared to people who are like you to, to say, you know, I think your memory is maybe, it seems like your memory has declined as a result of, of getting this injury. But one of the other advantages of a neuropsych test is that neuropsychologists are psychologists first. We're all licensed clinical psychologists. That's our, we all practice under the same license as any other psychologist. Um, It's a subspecialty of clinical psychology. And so we're also assessing for all the emotional components. So we're looking for PTSD, we're looking for depression, we're looking for other types of anxiety, because we know that those psychological factors can impact cognitive performance. And so so the neuropsychologist is going to actually really look holistically at you, your history, your complaints, your medical history, your psychiatric history, your family medical history, your family psychiatric history, and then a lot of social things like who do you live with? What do you do for fun? How far did you go in school? And then be able to kind of say these cognitive challenges, these memory problems that you're complaining about, we think that they're the result of your concussion or anxiety or a medication or, you know, so then, um, so then you can kind of really get a good snapshot of what's going on with your thinking skills and then also start to try to figure out what to do about it. And a neuropsych report, because a neuropsych assessment is, is kind of a consult service. You would come in and we'd, you know, gather all this information, do the testing, and then write up kind of like usually about a four to 10 page report, depending on what type of evaluation it is. But a big component of that are some recommendations. Like we think you should go talk to a psychiatrist, or we think you should, you know, get some blood tests done. Um, we think, you know, those sorts of things. So, and a little bit of kind of what to do about it. And then one of the things that sets my clinic apart from other neuropsych clinics is that we do treatment services. We help with the what's next. A lot of neuropsychologists are just in the business of doing the assessment and writing the report. We actually get 
referrals from other neuropsychologists to help with implementing the treatment recommendations. We do a lot of the counseling. We can also do some things to help people kind of develop new strategies to think better, focus better, those sorts of things. Awesome for giving us information about that um, because neurosciences is, is very important and yeah. it's very important, obviously, um, with domestic violence. So I encourage anyone who is interested in a neuropsychological evaluation to contact um, the Chicago Center for Cognitive Wellness. Yes, so like you said, you help with what happens next too and that treatment piece of it. And I feel like that's, that's really important. It's not just you know getting that evaluation, but then you're following up to get those next steps. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so they can find us at cogwellness.com. That's C-O-G wellness.com. And then our phone number is 855-264-9355. Thank you so much, Dr. Sherry All, for joining us. And we really appreciate you. And we also appreciate you for joining us on our virtual empowerment series that you also join us with those as well. So thank you so much. Loved having you. Thanks. I, I love, I love doing this. Thanks a lot. 